0: Welcome to Coming Around. I'm your host, Joey Torres. In today's episode, I talk with James about his transition from using the phrase, All Lives Matter, to Black Lives Matter. In the wake of yet another string of police killings of unarmed members of the black community, I've been thinking a lot about what those first few sparks are for some white people regarding coming around to the injustices named by the black community injustices that this community has been sharing forever. Why now, I wonder? Why in this moment? James, a white man in his late 30s, shares with us his answers to these questions. He openly discusses the social and emotional space he was in before, and what spaces he occupies now that have allowed him to crack open his heart and hear the needs of the black community in his life. Here's James's story. Hi, James. How's it going? It's going well. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for doing this with me and being willing to talk to a stranger. <laughs> so <laughs> why don't you tell me a little bit about how we got connected?
1: Uh, well, uh, it seems we have a mutual friend, one you knew in high school and one I knew in college. And, um, you know, given some of the recent events, I had posted several things on my Facebook page that had uh, bothered me about current administration issues. And um, um, I had commented on our mutual friends page about some things about the uh, uh, black lives matter versus uh, all lives matter, which is definitely a uh, current hot topic for a lot of people right now. And um, being that I uh, came from a background where I definitely would have been the response of all lives matter. And, I've uh, more recently changed my attitude on that. And that was kind of the effect of my comment. And, uh, so our friend uh, told me that you had been looking to talk to somebody about that. And So uh, here I am.
0: Well, I really appreciate it. Yeah. So I guess a little background for you is I post, you know, once in a while, I'll say, Hey, I'm thinking about this idea. So first with this project, I posted a couple months ago, Hey, I'm working on this project, would love to connect with people about stories of change. And then over the last week or two, I've, Posted more specific requests, and yeah, I just posted that one even just yesterday. So for those listening, James and I just connected yesterday, and now we're here on the phone today. So it's really wild. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm doing. I'm just trying to record some stories of change and hear people's perspective on change. And the podcast is called "Coming Around," based specifically on the idea that we're all kind of in process, and um, would love to just capture, you know, what those. Stories of process are so. Um, I guess I'll start by asking you. Tell me a little bit about, you know, when you first heard of Black Lives Matter and or All Lives Matter. Tell me about your initial kind of gut reaction to that. Why that was something that you had an opinion on. How you established that opinion. Just give me some of that background, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, so I guess you know the first time I ever heard about it would have been back during uh, the Ferguson riots. Okay. and um with, with that whole situation that happened and um you know i definitely grew up um in upper middle class white america where um you know when i was in elementary school i had um pretty much everybody was white we had one token asian girl and one token black girl and they were both the weird kids in class um, where,
0: where was this growing up where is that uh,
1: this was actually that was actually in san diego uh, but it was a private school and Um, You know, my parents tried to keep me in private school as much as they could when I was growing up. Uh, That didn't always happen. But um, so I kind of bounced between some private schools and some public schools back and forth. But um, definitely just because of where I lived and and everything, I didn't have a lot of exposure to uh, cultural diversity. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, there there tends to be the whole um, different is strange, different is scary. And uh, that, that kind of is where that starts from. And in terms of, you know, when the Black Lives Matter things happened back during Ferguson, um, from my perspective, as, you know, not having a lot of, uh, not a lot of understanding of Black culture or minority culture at all. Um, for me, it was more of one of these things like, these are people who are equal to me and they're trying to advance above me. So I guess, you know, when we when we originally got in contact, I tried to think more in detail of what really led to my feelings that way. And I think, you know, growing up in school, we learn a very European centric history class, right? They don't teach you um, African history, They don't teach you much about some of the African American history or minority history of any of that. um, With the exception of, hey, we used to have this slavery problem and Martin Luther King fixed it, you know, <laughs> to totally. blatantly oversimplify, right?
0: Well, no, uh, and, I, and I think you're naming some... So the reason for me, this is such an interesting way to kind of think about Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter is because I do think probably a lot of people grew up thinking like that, where, you know, there was this, there was this slavery problem, it ended, and then it kind of didn't end. And then Martin Luther King came And then it for sure ended. Right. So I think that whether, you know, while it's maybe a little embarrassing or maybe a little bit, not how you want to represent yourself now, I do think you highlight what a lot of people think about that history, you know? So I think it's important. I'm glad you're, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you're, um, you know, you're kind of reflecting in that way because I think it's almost common for some folks, you know, or some communities rather.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and I'm not ashamed to say that's where I came from because I definitely feel while change is scary, you know, just like, you know, you said, this is title, this whole thing is coming around. And I think it's so important that we continue to um, self-evaluate and be self-aware and try to gain perspective. And, you know, some of that is just perspective that I didn't grow up with. And it took a while to come around to that. And, um, you know, I grew up with affirmative action is this evil thing that is, you know, we already have equality. And now these people are beyond equality. They're just trying to get ahead of us. You know, and, and that was an easy thing to fall into because throughout my life I was told everyone's equal. There's no reason to think they're not. I was never I never went to a, you know, the ghetto where I watched the oppression and and the difficulties. I mean, it wasn't even until more recently that I really started to learn about how, you know, by and large, the ghettos that we have today are just basically the same segregated communities we had during separate but equal, right?
0: Right, it just perpetuates a system that feels like, oh, that was fifty years ago. We're not dealing with that now, and realize like, well, actually, there's a lot of there are a lot of communities that are still dealing with that.
1: Yeah, and you know, and like what what I had said on our on our friends page, my my comment there was, it's, um, it's so easy to fall into this attitude of everyone's equal because, um, you know, I wasn't alive during the time of segregation. Um, granted, people were. There's people alive today that were, um, you know. My my dad dropped out of, you know, he, he didn't finish high school, but, you know, my, my dad's significantly, you know, an older generation. He was born in 39. Mm-hmm. So, you know, interracial marriage for him, he very much had this idea of it being interspecies kind of thing, right? Because back during that time frame, like, I had to look this up one time when he told me because there was this narrow frame where they define people by the shape of their skull with this, like there was Cacazoids and Negroids and, and Mongoloids and all this kind of stuff. And that was the last thing he learned in science before dropping out and never had that corrected once it got widely discredited. You know,
0: wow, that is a really interesting connection to that old history. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's really fascinating.
1: And so things like that really shaped a lot of my childhood growing up. And, you know. I I I have to be careful how I say it cuz I don't I don't want to like throw my dad under the bus or anything like that cuz it's it's that's really not the case a lot of it was ignorance on multiple sides right but I grew up in a household that had perpetuated from his parents and parents before that and that kind of stuff just a continued form of racism and it took me a long time to really go from you know they've already got equality what more do they want to understanding that paper equality is not the same thing as social equality.
0: Right. Um, yeah. And not so, to, and I appreciate you saying that about kind of like wanting to paint a fuller picture of your dad. And I think that's also, you know, I think these we acquire how we sort of see the world through our parents' eyes and our family of origin and our communities and assume that you receive this kind of messaging, maybe even from your broader community, right? You kind of named that your school was mostly white and so can you talk a little bit about that? Like, did you grow up hearing like positive things about people of color? I, I'm I'm just sort of
1: trying you to... You know, it, it wasn't so much that I did, that I heard negative or positive things. It's just I didn't hear a lot. You know, that is there is exactly. that, that natural sheltering and isolation that happens when you live in a community that doesn't have a lot of diversity, sure. you know. Um, and it, it's interesting because we talk about how there's diversity now in the workplace and whatever else, but you still see... A black community, an Asian community, a Jewish community, a Middle Eastern community, a white community. You still see these separate people living living in little groups. You know, so I, I grew all the way up through high school not having a lot of exposure and then I remember it just being a culture shock when I went to college because all of a sudden I'm taking classes for- people who don't speak like me, you know, sure, Yeah, um, you know, I, being in college, all of a sudden you have, um, you have, uh, graduate students who are from other countries and, you know, some of them don't have the same oral or physical hygiene as you do, or, you know, those kind of things. And all of a sudden you're, you're dealing with these different, um, different things you can't understand. And I remember being livid my first chemistry class because my, uh, my lab TA, I couldn't understand a word he said. And I was like, man, I'm paying for this class and you can't even speak to me. And obviously that was like a, a first impression. And with time, you know, I graduated. Right. So I did learn. And well, I'm curious about like, can you, I mean, can you explain
0: the um, frustration part? Like, was, it was it that you were, did you feel kind of like, like that your time was being wasted, your money was being wasted. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I think that's an interesting perspective. I'm not super familiar with.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, I guess, you know, both of what you're saying, time and money. And, you know, for me, it was more of the, I paid for something and I want to get the benefit from it. You know, I want to get a good grade and I want to learn and pass my classes. And, you know, of course, at the time I had no perspective to realize, you know, pretty much this same person that I'm being upset about probably felt the same way coming into our country, you know? Uh, And so they had, they would have had I, I felt one semester of issues here, right? Of you know not being able to understand and having to, God forbid, open my chemistry book and learn for myself a little bit, you know. Um, so I had where, you know those your, kind of issues.
0: Where, when, what part of the country was your college, or or where did you go?
1: It was in New Mexico, New Mexico Tech.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Is that that's your connection to New
1: Mexico? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, well, I mean, I, I actually moved to New Mexico before that, but yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, so. I mean, yeah, that's a really interesting um so I'm hearing you to like kind of reflect on uh, I'm not trying to sugarcoat that moment, but I do want to illuminate there is some not like legitimacy to the frustration, but it does you know, there's a perspective there. There are people who think like that and it's not for the sake of straight up hating immigrants. I don't think that's the point. I think the point that it it's more nuanced than that. I think that what's kind of going on beneath the surface there is like you're mentioning a lack of exposure Maybe even a sort of a hyper valuing or a, a differently val differently valued system over English and sort of like what, yeah. what you can expect in it you, you know, like an American university. And but I think you're kind of pulling out a lot of those moments for someone who might not have the exposure, like you said, would naturally be sort of frustrated
1: in those moments, you know? Yeah. And you know given current events, we're so quick to villainize any form of racism, right? And don't get me wrong racism is bad it's it's wrong and we've got a systemic problem that needs to be fixed but to a degree people who haven't had a ch- chance to go through um re-evaluating and learning new things and getting exposure to cultures and stuff um we have to practice grace with that because you know lack of exposure breeds ignorance and a lot of times that those ideals are out of ignorance, not out of hatred. And so there's there's this fine line where we have to determine, are we mad at this person because they truly are, are, are showing hatred, or are we mad at them because they just haven't had a chance to learn yet?
0: Yeah, that's really you're really highlighting the exact point of this podcast for me. I don't always sort of share it. I don't, I don't, because I feel like sometimes I can be really complicated and, or even political and I'm never one to avoid a political conversation, <laughs> but except to say that this feels a little bit beyond what we could kind of write off as a political narrative. When for me, I, I think that, um, you know, I want to have the opportunity to teach people. I want everyone to have had the opportunity to learn. If you continue to be these ways and have these kind of hateful remarks or, or say something out of ignorance, but out of sort of elected ignorance, then that's a whole other conversation, right? I'm not trying to justify yeah. that. But I think on the other end, this lack of exposure, it's like, well, okay, well, have we, are we sure that they're exposed? Like, have we, have we taught them this? Have we, have we countered any of the narratives that they heard growing up in their families? or in their local communities that, weren't, that were also equally not exposed? Are we just kind of like ready to pounce on the next person who says something ignorant just because we're ready to write it off as one broad, you know, kind of broad narrative of racism? I mean, racism is terrible. Like you said, I'm not, I'm not trying to defend any one perspective except to say, like, are we giving people the opportunity to learn from their ignorance, to learn and sort of like fill in the gaps for themselves so that they can make more educated moves toward their adult life, toward their next steps, or are we just writing them off? Like who's going to be and step in and be the teachers, you know?
1: Yeah. And sadly, no amount of screaming at somebody that they need to stop being racist is going to enlighten them, right? Um, I keep seeing all over Facebook, I keep seeing people talking about, oh, these hypocrites that all of a sudden now care, and they don't care about, you know, black on black crime within the community, or they didn't care before all this happened. And now just because a white person killed them, now they care. And, you know, that narrative, it hurts my heart, because it's one of those things that there's a lot of people that, you know, especially younger generation they're seeing this stuff for the first time that maybe weren't you know, even back at Ferguson, didn't understand. They weren't old enough to really grasp what was going on, or you know, like me, hadn't had enough exposure yet to really learn from it. That it's taking some. It takes exposure to real life events versus just somebody yelling at you for being a racist. And um, so it's it's sad when we start labeling people a hypocrite because just all of a sudden now they care. I, I think there's. It takes an awakening to recognize and have a reason to care.
0: Well, like that's a great segue back to what we were originally talking about. So, so tell me about this kind of transition. So you're, you have this kind of gut reaction to say all lives matter. Did you get that gut reaction from your community or, or was that almost like a natural response to this idea? Like if Black Lives Matter means that black people are getting a leg up, did you kind of naturally gravitate toward the all lives matter phrase or did you feel like that was also a community influence? Tell me a little bit about how you established that.
1: I, th- I think that to a degree is a, is a, um, a victim of the echo chambers we tend to live in. Um, you know, granted, I naturally had the adverse reaction to it just because I already had the adverse reaction to affirmative action and those kind of things. Right. But, you know, all of a sudden you see the people posting, wait, no, all lives matter. And you're like, yeah, yeah. You know, you're right. All lives do matter. Why, why are we focusing on one type of person? Cause my life matters too. And I'm not black, you know? And so it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was something that I came up with on my own. No, it was something that somebody else would have said. And, you know, it's that confirmation bias problem where if all you're seeing is the things that fit within your purview, then you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to stick, I'm going to jump on that bandwagon. So I, I would say it's kind of a mix of, you know, preconceived notions, plus it just takes one match in the tinderbox to kind of keep everything going.
0: So were you like a, (laughs) let me get a little personal here. Were you like a passionate all lives matter guy? Were you like getting in arguments about it? Like how, how firm was this stance for you before?
1: No, I, I definitely wouldn't say I was like passionate and jumping out and, you know, yelling at people about it. It was more of the, you know, if, if it came up in discussion and we were talking and, you know, I didn't. I've, depending on the topic of different things, some things I'm very outspoken about and I'll, you know, if I, if I really know my topic well and I want to talk, I'll, I'll jump in there and get passionate and other things. It's kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to walk up to a black person and shout out them all lives matter, you know, uh, which, you know, perhaps would have been as much out of fear of getting punched in the face as it would have been out of, you know, just, you know, not wanting to start an argument, but, um, it, it was kind of a mix there. I would say, um, I, I definitely was not out on the street corner shouting.
0: Sure. So like that fear of being punched in the face, like, did you kind of know that saying all lives matter to a black person would lead that black person to being angry? Like, tell me about it. sort of, it feels kind of obvious, but I also think there's an interesting nuance in what you're saying. And so I kind of want to explore that a little bit. Can you say more about that?
1: I mean, I think anytime you uh go against the status quo and say something different than what the current narrative is, people get mad at you. You know, we we live in the social media generation right now, right? To where, yeah. you know, you say one wrong thing on the internet and all of a sudden you've got more in account. Um, and mm-hmm. so I, I think it would it was more of that kind of a I know the narrative that's being shouted from the rooftops. And if I say something different, people aren't gonna like. It. You know, it, it was more of that sort of a concept.
0: So then whenever, okay, so we'll kind of, so moving on a little bit. So when you, I want to kind of hear about how it started to unfold for you, how those strings started to get a little looser and you were pulling at them a little bit more. Tell me about the first time, I don't know how to even ask this because I have so many like different kinds of questions about it. But maybe <laughs> tell me about like the first time someone said Black Lives Matter to you in a moment where you made you go, hmm like maybe I'm kind of starting to get it. Tell me about those first baby steps into understanding it differently.
1: Um, So so that would have been much more currently, probably in the current situation because it wouldn't have been during the Ferguson thing. Like I w I wasn't there yet. Right. Um, Right. And, and, you know, a lot of my perspective has changed over the last, you know, five to 10 years really. And, and um, you know, I would say, you know, there's been a, a progress over time that, you know, through college and experiencing different cultures to um, when I married my wife almost 14 years ago, she's half Korean. So I, I got um, her mom is, you know, first generation American. And so I started to learn things about cultural issues there that I never experienced before, you know mm. um, it, that's part of what helped me to really learn the beauty of different cultures that I wouldn't have had otherwise um wait, wait, so let's, I talk, a lot. let's
0: talk about that did you know your wife was half korean when you first started
1: dating uh yeah once once we were dating yeah i mean i i i knew she wasn't white we'll put it that way um i didn't know details um but i you know i, I learned pretty quickly that she was half korean and and those kind of things and then you know it was a week after i met her that i ended up meeting her parents so oh wow uh, how was that it, it, it was interesting uh, her mom was um refused to cook for me because she she was scared she'd be embarrassed that I wouldn't like her food. And she made made my wife take me to a, a Korean restaurant to try food first. And uh <laughs> when when she found out that I actually liked it, then it was a okay, now we're gonna try to see what you won't like. <laughs> so that's so funny. Uh, it it changed perspectives pretty quick.
0: I'm picturing my Mexican family. I, I have I come from a big Mexican family there in Albuquerque. And um I'm picturing like the sort of opposite thing where my mom would say something like, Oh no, I'm not cooking for anyone until I know that they are worthy of it. And <laughs> in the opposite where it's like, Oh, I hope it's good enough. We'll try this other place first. That's, that's pretty funny. Comparison. In
1: my- yeah. Um, and and this thing. like my mother-in-law is an amazing cook and I, you know, love her food. So it was kind of one of those things where it was, it was more of, you know, the self-consciousness of her, on her part of seeing, you know, and that this was kind of some of my first experience into a minority's different perspective on the world is, you know, worried, you know, just the embarrassment of, Hey, I'm going to put my heart and soul into cooking a meal. And then you're not going to care about it. You're going to think it's disgusting. Oh,
0: that Um, is a, that's an image. That's a beautiful image. To think of it not as this kind of meek, like a meek, Oh, I hope he likes it, but more of a vulnerability. That's something.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was fully a vulnerability thing. Um, It it would not have been a meekness issue. It was, um, you know, because, you uh, know, Korean food has a lot of uh, really strong flavors to it that, you know, some people don't like my, my father-in-law to this day can't be in the same room with my mother-in-law when she makes kimchi,
0: oh, but, shit. Uh, yeah.
1: you know, it, which is just funny. You know, they've been married for a long time and, and, uh, and he still can't handle the smell. Right. So, and then with, with me all of a sudden it's, it's, you know, here, give me more. I want some. So it was kind of, a, it was a, a very different, perspective.
0: well and, and and just in the gesture of liking her food it's also like almost an acceptance of culture and acceptance of her own background too you know yeah that's really a beautiful thing to picture okay so your your wife's korean so you're starting to get exposed to other cultures and um i imagine that just keeps growing and growing and so then uh, it's a very false leap but to come back to the Those first few moments of hearing Black Lives Matter and having it start to resonate, even if it's more recent, which I, again, want to thank you for processing this with me. Who were your teachers in teaching about this systemic oppression stuff and these uh, systemic cycles? How did you how did how are you even open enough to continue to hear these uh,
1: these stories? Uh, So I think what opened my heart a lot to it was um, several years back, I started uh, going into pastoral studies. And so I've been uh, I've been taking classes to uh, work towards ordination and to be a pastor. And um, I had just an amazing class that I I really loved. Um, And it was a spiritual formation class and really just the idea of growing closer and closer to God. And one of the one of the kind of self-test that they told us about was, you know, if I look at myself today and say more so than last week, I can see myself loving other people more, then I'm growing closer. I have a larger spiritual formation. I'm, I'm seeing, I'm seeing people through God's eyes and, you know, the image of Christ being in every single person. And once you kind of gain that, all of a sudden it goes from being, you know, that person over there or them to my neighbor you know they have a name there's there's a a reason to care about it um Mm -hmm. and so for me that was a lot of the real formative thing of and and as i've gone down these these studies and started to learn more uh, learning about um history of the church and how the difference between Everything got anglicized as missionaries went through and kind of just destroyed local cultures. And, you know, it's just so painful to hear about that and recognizing local cultures in places that really should be celebrated instead of destroyed. I think a lot of that is really what kind of changed my attitude towards it and recognizing, man, culture is so beautiful. Why would we even think of destroy? So
0: it's a very beautiful image I have in my head of the the Imago Dei, the image yeah. of God that you're getting in other people. Do you have any, yeah, putting you on the spot here, so if you don't, <laughs> I, by all means, but um, do you have any kind of stories or images in your head about the first few times that you would see the image of God in someone else that you hadn't up to that point? And can you kind of explain a little bit about what that felt
1: like? I think for me it's been, it's so easy to, you know, interpersonal relationships dealing with people that just rub you the wrong way. Mm -hmm. They're so difficult to deal with at times. And, you know, having those, it's real easy to say that person is causing me trouble. And, um, I've had some of these experiences where you're like, man, maybe that person actually has their own issues, um, has their own situation. And, you know, through a lot of time of like, God, help me to see them through your eyes, help me to love them your way. Um, help me to not get so stuck in how I've been hurt. But you know, why do they feel that way? Uh, my son went through some uh, bullying situations um, on the on the school bus. And I had to talk to him. I was like, you know, bullies bully because they've been bullied because they hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's their internal hurt that is making them lash out at other people. I was like, you know you don't know what that bully's been through you don't know what they're going through at home they may have parents that don't care they may have abusive parents you don't know you know they could have had you know they could have just come from somebody making fun of them for something and they've got you know it's that chain of of pain and so i think a lot of that i mean and raising kids is like i mean it is the refiner's fire for trying to <laughs> understand people right you know and you know trying to help my son through some of the problems he's been through and you know I faced bullying as a kid, but I never had anybody tell me those things to help me to understand and care about that bully. For oh, me, that is... To, you know, they just learned to hate them. Now, now, being able to tell my son, you know, that person is also a creation of God. You got to love them. Even though there's a problem, you still got to love them, you know? And it, it's, it's kind of been changing for my son to recognize that. And it's, it's changed how he looks at bullying too.
0: So I have another one of my friends who I interviewed talked a lot about compassion and but in in the literal sense, like to suffer with and to if you can kind of be on the level or at least have a sense of or an understanding of how others are suffering. It gives you a better sense of how to connect with them. So even if you don't agree or even if you are holding a boundary or a firm stance, being able to look at them with compassion, with a deeper understanding of how they suffer, it can cause you to build those connections that maybe you weren't able to have before, because it's easy to be angry, because it's easy to go toward, you know, frustration and revenge. So that's a really powerful image I can picture. I don't even know what your son looks like, but I can picture (laughs) you and your son having uh, just him on the bus, looking at that bully in a different way. And of course, right. It's not to say that he should tolerate bullying, but as he's learning how to deal with it and manage it and take the appropriate steps to resolve it, that in that process, he doesn't, his heart isn't hardened, you know, that's yeah, kind of. Yeah. Right here. yeah
1: um, and I mean, compassion is such a interesting thing. I mean, we lack so much empathy in our country because of the way we've isolated ourselves so much. You know, I heard, uh, I've heard this, I don't even know where this quote comes from, but I've heard it for a while and I, you know, it's, we used to live in community and we would search for individuality and now we've gone to a point to where we live as individuals and we're so thirsty for community, but we don't know where to find it. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I, we just lack empathy. Our, our lives are so self-centered at this point. Um, you know, social media is, it's so far from being positively social that it's, you know, all we do is judge ourselves compared to what we see online. And it, it's, it's uh, very interesting to see what we lack in terms of compassion and empathy for the, for others.
0: Right. And to feel like even to become aware of that, the idea that we're lacking anything when everything feels like it's just at your fingertips, where everything feels like it's so accessible and you can find any piece of information you want and order everything online that there's this almost like metacognitive uh, approach to like, actually this, (laughs) that I have everything that I could need makes me feel so desperate for the things that might not feel like needs, but definitely are like relationships and community and connection. I really,
1: yeah. I mean, we were, our church is struggling with that, trying to figure out how to minister in our community. Cause um, I, I live in a very affluent community. You know, we've got um, the highest PhDs per capita in the world and some of the highest numbers of millionaires around here. Um, Where is and- that? it's in los alamos new mexico oh, yeah. and so you know i don't know if you're familiar with the manhattan project and oh, yeah. development yeah so i mean that's that's where i work and and um we we you know we've got families with you know two lab salary and lots of money and that kind of stuff and so everybody thinks they have everything they need and it's you know it's easy to minister in an area that's suffering poverty cuz you're like man meet the need go you know go feed them go go you know give them clothes give them a place to take a warm shower or whatever And you can go meet the need, but ministering in an area that's so affluent, it's like, I mean, people won't ask you for anything because they think they have everything they need.
0: Well, that is, that's, um, that's sad. (laughs) That, That makes me feel really sad inside because, right, because they do probably tangibly have everything they need to survive, but they definitely don't have everything that they need. Wow. Okay. So, um, tell me more about, tell me more about this like very firm black lives matter stance. So you are, you're, you're kind of coming around, you get it, you see it. Tell me about how you became a vocal advocate, how you started to post this on social media and how your community has responded.
1: Yeah. I mean, I started seeing, man, I, I watched the video of George Floyd dying and man, that was hard to watch. Uh, Right. I've, a lot of times I will try to not watch stuff because it just, it's so hard to watch. Um, to literally watch the life go out from somebody's eyes. It's right. just, it's, it's something no one should ever have to see, right? Um, but I watched that video and it was just so gut-wrenching to watch. And then seeing the, the face on the officer, it was like nothing was happening. And it, to me, that just, the, the disconnect there was so great. It's like, what has happened in this officer's life to make him not care? What has happened in the lives of the officers standing around and not stop him? You know, um, those questions started becoming so real to me and trying to understand what was going on. And then watching the political nature in our country of how everything responded and um, how politically the church gets used as a pawn so much religiously. I think one of the first things our friend saw um, that I had posted was um, the picture of Trump standing in front of a church holding Bible. And, you know, I watched the video of him walking from the white house over to that church. I, you know, I watched um, cell phone footage of, you know, the protesters getting, um, getting, ga- um, tear gassed and, you know, all that kind of stuff to get to to clear the way. So we can go over there and make a photo op. And as, as, someone studying to be a pastor and knowing how important it is to, you know, to love others and to see, and to see this stuff. i I was watching that and it's like, Man, this is just so far gone from anything that any Christian should, should support. And, um, I just really started watching this stuff. And to me, I just, between learning about poverty and recognizing the oppression that was happening, the voting problems and the poverty problems and, and so many things, it just all kind of came to a, to a, a boiling point for me where I was like, man, I, I wanted to do something, but where I live, I don't know what to do. Right. I, you know, I, I don't, I, there's not a big protest I can go down and march with. There's not, you know, those kind of things uh, I did get to go to a local protest that they had that was very peaceful. And, you know, 95% of us there were white. Right. Uh, but there, you know, but it was heartwarming to see that many people speaking out in support of, of all this. Um, and so a lot of that has just kind of come together and it's been, no, we can't say all lives matter until we truly acknowledge every individual. And I, I think that's part of our problem is we generalize so much. Our, psychologically, our brains are designed to um, only see differences, only see changes. Um, we, we desensitized things that are the same every, day. um, and so it's so easy to say that, you know, everyone as a whole, it's not a big deal, but until we look at the individual and see how these individuals are hurting, it just changes everything.
0: Right. And I think that's a really power. That's like the most important thing I can think about when, uh, I try to get people to right, we we've kind of alluded to this, but I think change doesn't come from. You know, you've already said you're not going to shout someone into changing on social media. You're not going to shout someone into thinking differently than you do. But if you can share these narratives, if you can share these stories, if you can reveal to somebody how impactful this social change might be for this person or this local community, then maybe they can start to see how it connects to broader communities, to your own social location, to the things that you do that might be harming those people in those communities. I think it boils down to exactly what you're saying, which is, you know, these personal narratives, these like, how can I step in? What can I do in my corner of the world? It might not be much, but at least I'm doing something. I'm making a stance. I'm being vocal because sometimes being vocal uh, about an oppositional standpoint in your echo chamber or in your, you know, your local community, that might very well be an action that you can do that shows others like there's stories here. There's, there are important things that we're just washing over because they don't align with our narrative. And I'm really thankful that you, that you've brought that perspective to me today.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so difficult as we sit and, you know, don't have perspective and we just continue to repeat the same problems over and over. And, you know, I've, everyone talks about how there's this, you know, the woke attitude and the white hate, you know? Um, and it's sad because it's so easy to completely delegitimize an argument by just throwing a label on it and not allowing it to, to come to fruition. Because the moment I say white hate, so I hate myself because I'm white and I, I have white guilt or whatever, it immediately says, I don't have to address any problems. Mm. And the, the reality is, every single one of us it doesn't matter what color we are we have prejudices that we don't even recognize in our own in our own purview because you know I, I, in general we we lack so much self-awareness and you know it's so important to be introspective and to work to gain perspective and to look at other people's perspectives so that we can gain that that you know all-encompassing perspective instead of so being so isolated um and Because for me, I look at it and I say, you know, man, I am privileged. I am blessed with what I have. You know, I I have, I own my own home. I have, I have my nuclear family. I've got, you know, all these things. And whereas a lot of people don't have that, but I also got those because of, you know, man, I was lucky that I got scholarship, that I got into college. I, you know, I was lucky that I, I grew up in good schools and all these things, all these, all these blessings that I had that a lot of people don't start out with. Right. And to me, that's not hating what I grew up with. I, I am thankful for what I grew up with. I, am very happy that I had those advantages in life, but I don't have to hate that in order to look at somebody else and say, man, you didn't have those advantages. And I feel bad for that. I wish there was something I could do to help you have those advantages. That's, that's not hate for myself. That's love for another. And it's, we look at things so black and white of if I put someone else above me, it must mean I hate myself. No. I mean, man, God calls us to be the least of these all the time. He says to be the servant and to elevate others above us and care about them. And that to, to me, you know, starting to recognize all that stuff is where it's so hard for me to watch other people on, on social media or people that I meet in person and that I know. And I converse with friends of mine who will, go the opposite direction and say, say, yeah, no, all lives matter. It's hard because all lives do matter. But by saying that right now, you're saying that black lives don't matter. And, you know, all lives won't matter until black lives do matter. That's you know, I know that's kind of a taboo statement right now, or not taboo, but it's a cliche. It's cliche. Yeah. And, and, but it's, it's so true.
0: As you heard James reflect, our echo chambers can be so loud and so powerful. It took James examining his faith, his relationships, and even his parenting to open up his heart to the underlying message of what it really means to him to say all lives matter. Through his honest reflection, James came around to the idea that while all lives do in fact matter, it takes the special attention of naming Black Lives Matter to illuminate the struggle and pain that the black community has been shouting for centuries. Another huge thanks to James for reflecting so honestly and personally about his own journey, and thank you for listening. This episode is produced by Josh Perez, and the theme music is performed by Set of Lives. Listen for new episodes just about every week, and until next time, remember, if you're not listening, you're not changing.